Dave Fanning on 2FM. Now, how do TV and movie creators make fictional worlds more believable? CGI, obviously enough, goes a long way, but a constructed language can also make a fantasy story more authentic. Constructed languages are conlangs, as they're also known. They're not new, but their prominence in mainstream media is certainly becoming bigger, with their recent appearance in Avatar, The Way of Water, and HBO's House of the Dragon. So, how does someone create a new language? And more importantly, how does it add to the viewer's experience of a fantasy world like, say, Westeros or Middle Earth. Take a listen to this. If the day comes when you must find me again, just give that coin to any man from Bravos and say these words to him. Valar Morgulis. Valar Morgulis. Valar Morgulis is high Valerian. For all men must die, a popular phrase in Game of Thrones. And the man who created high Valerian, Dothraki, and many more of our favourite TV and film languages is here now to give us more detailed insight into the fascinating world of constructed languages. So, David J. Peterson, you're very welcome to the programme. David, when it comes to writing a new language, like, I mean, where do you even start? Well, the first thing to do is you have to determine what exactly your language is going to be. There are lots of different types of created languages that have been created for many purposes. For example, one of the more successful ones is Esperanto that was created uh, by L.L. Zamenhof in the late 19th century to facilitate international communication. If you're creating a language like that, it's going to look very different from, say, when I created Dothraki for Game of Thrones. So often when you're talking about film and television, you're creating a language most of the time for people that are supposed to be real in a world that's not supposed to be real. And so you want to create something that both fits the aesthetic of that world and also fits what we understand about human languages, that looks and sounds as real as the languages that we have here on Earth. Well, the one that we have heard of more than any other, more than all the ones that you've created, and it's incredible just how many that you have, is the one you've mentioned there, Esperanto. So let's take a look, because that's well over 100 years old now, the very early 1900s. You actually studied and can speak Esperanto to the point where what? Is there a full language, a full vocabulary, a dictionary and all the rest of it? It was meant, it was intended for use as a second language for all of us and never massively took off. Would that be right? Yeah, that's correct. I mean... And I think it really what its goal was a little bit too broad, um, though also it had a bit of ill luck because, of course, in the late 19th century, um, there were a lot of utopian ideals going around that uh, were catching fire in a lot of different places all over the world. Uh, and then, of course, there was World War One and World War Two, and there was increasing isolationism. And suddenly the idea of an international language like that, it just wasn't as attractive anymore for a lot of people. Um, but that's not the that's not a fault of the language, of course, uh, because the intrinsic value of a language doesn't have anything to do with how successful it's going to be. That's an entirely separate metric. Um, and in fact, if you take away the idea that Esperanto has to be everybody's default uh, second language and just look at the fact that it's a language that somebody created, it's actually marvelously successful now. I mean, there's a million people who speak it. And indeed, it is a full language. You can actually speak it as your first language. Um, and in fact, my two instructors uh, in Esperanto that are in the class I took at UC Berkeley were both native speakers of Esperanto that grew up in entirely different countries. Um, so by that measure, it's incredibly successful. And at this point, I think it's both unrealistic and unfair to say, well, it can only be successful if it's everybody's universal language. Right. I think people speak it. That's cool. 
Yeah, no, I get you. That is true, all right. And you speak eight languages at least. English, Spanish, French, German, Russian, Esperanto, as you mentioned, uh, Arabic uh, and American Sign Language. I'll get to something of that in a second or two. But I want to take a look at, like, look at the TV programmes. Look at the movies. I mean, everything from Thor, The Dark World, Dune at the moment as well, The Hundred, Game of Thrones, obviously Penny Dreadful, Halo, House of the Dragon, all of these things. Um, You know, there probably was a time, I can't necessarily remember, when shows just made up all gibberish if they needed to, to make it look like somebody was speaking from a different planet or something. I presume they can't do that these days because there's just too much out there where people want something a bit more rigid and a bit more honest and a bit more, if you like, real. You know, um, the, it still happens, not as often. And the, and the thing that I'm grateful for is that more people catch it nowadays. Uh, but the truth is that, you know, uh, gibberish does sometimes have its, have its place. And it's basically if the amount of dialogue is so low that really all you need is just the impression of it. It doesn't matter, um, you know, what actually is being said or if it's uh, if you can figure it out. Um, A really nice example that I think I can think of is, uh, of all things, in Lilo and Stitch, where uh, Stitch, he basically says, like, one full sentence in, you know, his alien language in the entire movie. And it's supposed to be an insult that's so egregious that everybody is just ridiculously offended. Um, And frankly, I think it works better without (laughs) any kind of full conling and without a translation, because then it's left up to your imagination, you know, what he says. And so it's like, that's the place where gibberish is supposed to be. Just, you know, one line in an alien language in a film that's otherwise, you know, entirely in Mm. English, where you want a full constructed language is in the same place, truthfully, where you'd want to hear a full natural language in a movie. In other words, you know, it's unrealistic to drop somebody into the middle of Mongolia and there are a bunch of scenes in Mongolia and everybody somehow speaks English. Uh, I mean, you see this happen all all the time, especially in action movies. Uh, And and frankly, it just doesn't feel like the real world. You know, it's just a bit unrealistic. And so if you think about a fantasy world or a sci-fi world, Uh, It's the same thing. You don't want to be dropped into an alien planet and somehow all of the aliens miraculously speak English. It's just not as much fun. And that's the whole point of these things. The whole point is to have some fun and to feel a bit of unreality for a bit, a bit of fantasy. And I think that uh, created language has really added that. Okay, well, you mentioned Lilo and Stitch and the gibberish and that and the the alien language. And, you know, it did like that's, if I remember rightly, an animated science fiction comedy drama. So with no translation, that works as far as you're concerned. It's better that the audience doesn't necessarily know and use your damn imagination and shut up and just enjoy the movie. Now, having said that, um, you know, the passion that people have, the fandom types, the obsession, etc. Does that make you have to be on top of your game all the time? And are you happy that they are like that? And that when you meet these people, holy cow, the questions they ask you. (laughs) You know what? you know what I'm happy about is that their numbers have increased yeah. over the years. You know, I, I remember with uh, when the first uh, season of Game of Thrones came out, you know, I thought I was going to be like Mark Ogren and have people learning the language all over the place. I only had about six people that were interested, yeah, six total. But like, you know, as things have gone on, and especially with uh, by the last season of Game of Thrones, in fact, uh, there there was a line of Dothraki in it that somebody spotted and immediately before the episode was done with its original airing, somebody had uh, tweeted at me that, Hey, I, th- I think there was an error in the Dothraki. 
And I was like, that can't be right. I didn't make a mistake. And I went back and looked, and it was the silliest thing. Um, the line they asked me to translate Daenerys asks, uh, how many uh, sheep and goats did this dragon eat? And the Dothraki response was like, um, uh, three sheep, eight goats, uh, something like that. Anyway, when it went to airing, they changed the subtitle to like 11 sheep and 12 goats <laughs> without asking me to change it. And so first of all, I don't know why they cared. Like somebody who saw that and was like, oh, that's not enough sheep and goats. And then they just didn't ask me to retranslate it. But the point is, for the first original airing, somebody was watching that, heard the Dothraki, and is like, that's not the number for three. Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait a minute. I'd, I'd be furious. I would give out hell to the people in charge saying, sack that man. Didn't you know it was 11 sheep or eight sheep or whatever? I mean, the thing is that the tracking side of things is the guttural language of the warrior horsemen. And in the same thing, you have the High Valerian, which is the Eastern region stuff. Like, it's very difficult. Like, how many do you have in Game of Thrones, by the way? Oh, well, the thing is, I think there's been, oh, gosh, I think I've created four, if at least four full languages for Game of Thrones. Actually, if you count the unaired pilot that got canceled, I think it's six. Um, and then a couple of dialects for one language. But uh, the thing that's so cool about that universe is that the way that George R. R. Martin wrote it, he actually talked about language families, about different dialects, about languages being related to each other. That's not actually a common thing in fantasy. Usually it's just like everybody speaks the quote unquote common tongue. And there's like one group of people who speak some other language. So like there's the potential for like thousands of languages in George R. R. Martin's universe. Uh, I doubt we'll ever get there. But, you know, if if basically if HBO decides to keep exploring the space and do new shows in different lands, you know, we might be able to see a, yeah. a pretty nice language family. I mean, like, you know, a language adds what exactly do you think in general to a new fictional world and story? I really think it grounds it um, in a type of reality that you can't get in any other way. Um, and it's like, it, it kind of depends what you're going for with your, with your show or film. If, cause I think one of the things that was so, fantastic about the original Lord of the Rings movies is that it wasn't supposed to be like, you know, a fun, like, you know, sword and sorcery type of thing that I think, which was what the Aragon movie was going for. That came out later. Uh, if Peter Jackson really wanted to show you here's middle earth, it's a real place. It's different from our, you know, real world, but he really wanted to sell you on the fact that this was a real place. And nothing helps to ground you in that than hearing some language that you don't understand, but that you can tell clearly has systematicity to it, yeah. has a rhythm, has a specific sound system. You know, the exact type of feeling you get when you go to a different country where you don't speak the language. It's like what you hear around you, you don't understand it, but you know it's not gibberish. You know it. You know that it has a, a, a structure to it. You know that it has a system to it. You can tell that it has, you know, uh, ways that people can be, you know, be humorous, can be serious, can be angry, can be soft, can be sad. You can hear it in the language. And that's the type of thing that having a fully constructed language does for your world. So basically, if you want the type of reality that you can get just by going to a different country, that's what you need. Mm to help ground a fictional world. 
By the way, we are talking to David J. Peterson, a very successfully constructed numerous languages for loads of film and TV programmes as well. And the conlangs thing, I mean, you know, like, you know, the whole idea of constructing a new language, it's not a new concept. So I presume with your background, is it like the Berkeley thing, the BA degree in English and linguistics, then the MA, then attending the Esperanto class, then the Language Creation Society in 07. You're up there on YouTube with the art of language invention with everything that you did. Was it just a natural progression or did you have to do something specific to be able to do the job you're doing now? Well, I'll tell you the, the thing that I, um, oh, uh, that I could, I attribute my success to most, at least in terms of the, my ability to construct languages is my initial exposure to the language creation community. Cause you know, uh, like a lot of people before like 2009, um, I kind of independently invented the idea of creating my own language, which was the case for most people, like at least last century and before. Um, like we didn't know about other people creating languages when we started. Um, and so naturally, if if I did it, I created my first language, I assumed it was the best language ever and mm. that I was some kind of genius. And then I found this community online of people that had been doing it for decades and pretty soon, you know, after the initial culture shock, I was like, man, all these people are a lot better than I am. And their languages are a lot better than mine are. I have a lot to learn. And I learned from them. I, I learned both directly, you know, by asking questions, but also by looking at their languages, which were are still preserved on a lot of very early, early websites. Love that early web design. Um, and that was really how I learned how to be a language creator. And I basically studied that way myself uh, for almost 10 years before the there was a competition announced uh, by the Language Creation Society for to create the Dothraki language. And so when I competed, you know, with many others, uh, I felt ready. I felt well placed to do so. Um, and I really owe that success to the larger language creation community where I learned so much. And I presume you're on your own or is there a collaboration? I mean, I presume that once you are told you've got the gig, everybody from George, Double O or Martin, etc. on down says, well, listen, this guy knows what he's doing. Let's see what he comes up with. <laughs> yeah, I mean, usually, uh, I mean, the, the producers like to, they... They really want to make sure the sound of it is correct, yeah. um, which is uh, which is the part they care about. But then they're they're trusting in me to make sure I take care of the rest, the grammar, the vocabulary, and everything. And um, and yeah, really, the, I think the the results bear out once the fans get into it and they're so excited. Um, and you know, I I did this. Uh, I, I did uh, you know language creation for productions um, by myself all the way up till 2019, where. Uh, where my agent finally said, like, you know, you can you can get help on this if you just ask them. I'm like, really? I could hire somebody? <laughs> and it yeah. was great. And so I, I ran my first competition. This was for um, uh, Motherland Fort Salem. Uh, and I found a collaborator in Jesse Sams, who's a longtime language creator and was a, a professor of linguistics at the time. And um, our collaboration for that show was so incredibly stellar. Oh, that right. I have so that could be the future for you ever then, yeah. since. Yeah, that's what oh, you yeah, got. Yeah, right. I, 
I work with her on everything now. And I think the stuff that we do together is better than the stuff I did on my own. Okay, well, working exclusively with with the partner, um, Jesse Sams, on like, you know, Shadow and Bone, Vampire Academy, and also on Dune. So let's get up to date on Dune. And like, I want to talk about the actors and what they think, like how how irrelevant is your detail to some of them and how absolutely vital it is to maybe some others. Just let's take Timothy Chalmont, um, who is like the biggest around at the moment. And we're talking about Dune here. He, he he comes to you and he says, look, there's two ways to do this. You can give it to me at full speed or you can give it to me slow. I only want it slow. Isn't that right? I presume a lot of them said that. Um, actually, no. And man, where did you get this info? Because, yeah, he was the <laughs> he, he was actually the only one, at least for Dune, that asked me to change the recordings um, because he preferred it that way, which uh, personally I love. Um, I, I love to because it, it tells me that it's like they're they're listening to, to what I'm giving them and deciding what's going to work best for them. And because really, that's all that matters. Like uh, what I do you know, when we record stuff and when we write stuff down is we give them everything. We're, yeah. we're like, you know, here's here it is written in the language. Here it is broken down syllable by syllable. Here's what it means, like word for word. Here's this fast version. Here's a slow version. Take it take and use what you need and that's fine for most people but then some want something specific so yes in fact Timothy Chalamet did want specific well, then, recordings so, where we cut out the fast speed right exactly and I can understand that I mean, I'm pretty sure like I'm not an actor but I'm pretty sure if I was in that position that's exactly the way I'd want it almost if you like a phonetic reading I mean like you know you'll translate you'll record your voice that's what they hear and the phonetic reading is given syllable by syllable breakdown is what I'm talking about here is that what you kind of almost have yeah. to do with everybody yeah. And, and the thing is, like, um, I think that each actor finds their own method for using the materials that we give them yeah. to do what they need to do. And I'm sure you know? some show an awful lot more interest than others. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely the case. But it's like, you know, as long as they can do it on screen, then I'm happy with it. And it is absolutely fascinating. David, thank you so much for being with us on the programme today. David J. Peterson it is, who is a constructed language main man, frankly. <laughs> you're, you're, the, you're the number one by the sound of it. Thanks very much, David. Good luck. Thank you. It was a real honour. Thank you. Dave Fanning on 2FM.